0: Hello and welcome to Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting, the podcast designed to highlight strategies and resources that help youth in care transition to adulthood successfully. Our guest today is Adam Pavo. Adam is the Executive Director of Impact Living Services located in Forest, Virginia. Welcome Adam. I am so glad that you could join our podcast series today. How are you doing?
1: I am doing well, Lynn. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to meet with you today.
0: You're very welcome. And I'm excited to learn about your organization. But first, before we get into the details of what your organization does, I would like to ask you if you could please share a little bit about yourself and how is it that you came to be connected with the foster care system?
1: Yeah. Okay. So my background is actually in mental health, I graduated with my master's degree in 2006 in professional counseling and have since become licensed as a professional counselor. But what I have realized in doing this work, specifically during my residency, uh, I worked with a lot of the Medicaid population and uh, folks that were in lower income brackets and generally dealt with the child welfare systems as a result of that. And what I realized is, man, no matter how much Progress that gets made with the individual, unless we start working with the family as a whole, it's really hard for that progress to continue. In 2005, I started working in group homes while I was still in my undergraduate degree. In 2008, there was a transformation in Virginia that kind of sounded like this, you know, with like slogans and campaigns of every child deserves a home and every child deserves a family and things like that. Slogans that I really agreed with and so felt kind of torn working in a group home type setting. And at the time I was pretty young, 21, 22, 23 years old, and just getting into this field and realizing that feeling kind of torn because I know that the work that we had done with children and families, we saw a lot of positive progress, but also that these kids were leaving group homes without a next step. And some of them were in foster care and some of them weren't. After I had finished my undergraduate degree and the transformation in Virginia started taking place, we started a therapeutic foster care program and did that for a little while until my residency started. So I started working as a counselor in the community and continued to work with children and families and started working full time with our local department of social services as a children and family services coordinator and did a lot of family engagement, family finding stuff. I don't know how frequently that gets discussed on this podcast, but it was a lot of fun work in getting families connected with one another, asking the right questions, working with the understanding that families are experts on themselves and should be a part of the planning. Did that for about three and a half years until I started working at our local community service board and worked with families in foster care type situations. It was licensed by the Department of Behavioral Health, though, and we were placing some children that were in foster care and some that were not, but they were all teenagers and the hope was to return home and we were able to accomplish that goal a lot of times but after working there for a couple of years, I would see that these kids, when they turned 18, they didn't have much of an opportunity afterwards. That's when I joined Impact Living Services, which was roughly five years ago, was to change what happens to those kids. And That's where I've been for the last five years, is working with those kids aging out of foster care, as well as a lot of our other
0: programming. Okay. A couple of things came to mind as you were sharing your background and thank you for doing that. One is the the group home situation because I've talked with many organizations that of course they have connections with group homes. Maybe they go in and do some training with the youth in group homes or or what have you, lots of different situations. I get the sense that generally speaking, group homes get a bad rep and maybe legitimately so. When I was in foster care, I was in two different group homes and you know what? They were great. They were very helpful. I had house parents. The house parents were caring and it was two years. And it was just, I was really, really happy that I had that opportunity to live there in that setting. So I'm just curious what your perspective is on group homes, if there's some kind of general observation or is it just really everyone is unique?
1: So I think it's complex. I'll say this. What some of the critiques of group homes are is that oftentimes permanency doesn't get achieved. I tend to agree with that. While I was working in the group home, you know, I developed really good relationships and still have kids to this day that will reach out to me if they have a question or I'll take them to lunch every now and again. I left in 2011 and started in 2005. And so these are adults now. You know, I think relationships can be made and relationships can be had. And I think positive change can exist in the context of group home. And I think what you described is, you know, a parent model. Not all group homes have that model. And, you know, the group home that I worked at did not. It was, well, initially it did not. We moved toward that role later on, which I think was helpful. But when you have a lot of staff that are transitioning in and out of kids' life, it's hard to have authentic relationship in those types of situations. And I think those types of relationships bring healing, and are helpful as far as long-term success. is going to be the social equity that they're able to have, that these kids are able to have access to.
0: Right. I know there's research out there that shows that the one key element, if you could choose one for future success, is a relationship with one supportive, caring adult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. At least one. Yeah.
0: It's so important. The other question that I had for you from your background is you had mentioned the phrase family finding. For those who might not be familiar with that, what does that mean? From
1: the Department of Social Services perspective at the time, the problem was that often a child would come into foster care and you would have the application or the face sheet of that child and it would often say father unknown and there wouldn't be a whole lot of information on the key players in this kid's life. And unfortunately sometimes it's because there aren't a whole lot of key players in this kid's life. But other times it's because either the time or resources weren't spent on developing and understanding who these key players are. And so in my role I had, you know, access to some software that gave me some additional information about who might be important in these folks' lives based on some Nexus, at the time, it was a LexisNexis program that had access to a lot of public records that kind of had an algorithm to give me insight on who might be available. And while that was valuable, what was more valuable was asking better questions. And those questions looked like, hey, you know, Christmas is coming up. Who do you normally spend Christmas with? And then it's getting that information and then having conversations with those folks and understanding, like, okay, well, bringing them to the table and having a conversation of, like, hey, this is the situation, this is what's going on. How can we, as a group, come together to come up with a plan for these kids to make sure that they're well taken care of? That's kind of the combination of family finding and family engagement, at least what it looks like in Virginia.
0: And it was it really it wasn't necessarily looking for kinship care, or was that part of it? Looking for someone who could provide that kinship care.
1: A lot of times that was what resulted out of it, but it wasn't necessarily the goal of it. We weren't necessarily trying to find people to take these kids in, though that sometimes did happen. And obviously it's a positive result. If a kid can be with a family member rather than a stranger without, you know, I don't want to use language that can be offensive to foster parents, being a foster parent myself. But, you know, I think kids should be with folks that they know if that's an opportunity for them.
0: Yeah. You actually remind me of an interview that I had done previously with Dr. Johanna Griesen, who wrote a book called Caring Adults Are Everywhere. And it's a program with the acronym CARE, a natural mentoring intervention for older youth in foster care. It's a program to try to connect older youth in foster care with people who are in their lives already to help provide that mentoring. And even if it isn't necessarily kind of a like a regular mentor can meet on a regular basis. Like you're saying, I think that's the ideal, but even if somebody can be in their lives now and then to provide some support, I think that's the goal of her program to make those connections.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for sharing and indulging me with my questions. (laughs) I did want to get into your organization, Impact Living Services, and find out what it is that your organization does, what your role is there in with the organization. So I'll let you share all about your organization.
1: Impact Living Services started in 2012. And at the time, it was just Lynchburg, Virginia. And at the time, it was just to solve one problem. And that is youth aging out of foster care have really bad outcomes. I know that you and your audience are well aware of the bad things that happen to kids as they age out. And so we really wanted to launch for the sole purpose of changing what happens. And so we wanted to make sure that these kids weren't homeless. We wanted to make sure that these kids weren't incarcerated. We wanted to to try to, for those young ladies that have kids before the age of 21, that either they're taken care of and their lives don't snowball from there and they're able to get themselves support and get on a path that leads to success. We wanted to make sure that they had access to higher education, post-secondary education, whether that's college, whether that's trade school, or whether that's just finishing their high school diploma and entering the workforce. Our program, we have apartments and townhomes that we place these young folks in, these youth aging out, and they're fully furnished. We take care of the basic necessities. And so they get money for groceries every week. Utilities are taken care of. Basic Maslow stuff is taken care of so that they can make sure that they can really dive into the things that are going to make them successful. And so we have caseworkers, and this is kind of where I think a big part of our paradigm is different and why we see a lot of our success is that our caseworkers live on site. And what I mean by that is they don't share an apartment with the youth, but they live a lot of times in the same apartment complex as the youth that we serve because this is what we believe. And that is one of the biggest challenges that these kids face is relational poverty. And so the lack of relationships and the availability of relationships is going to determine their success or failure. And a lot of times, for many of the youth that we serve, they haven't had the best examples of positive caregivers. If they're in foster care, generally speaking, they've been abused or neglected from someone that should be a person to keep them safe. And so our caseworkers are more than caseworkers, they're their neighbors. They do things like get them connected to employment education, like a caseworker would do, but they also do things like go get ice cream, have dinner, cook dinner together, teach them how to do grocery shopping, go grocery shopping with them. The way I describe it when we're hiring caseworkers is a combination between an RA and a foster parent. A lot of times when these youth come to us, they're not prepared to be living independently. And so our hope is is that after they come to us, and we're able to help them launch that they're ready to do so independently.
0: And are these caseworkers, are they social workers or is that a title? They are social workers.
1: Well, some of them are. Their title is case manager, but as far as title protection goes, some of them are social workers and that's where a lot of our caseworkers come from. They often have social work degrees. They do have to have a bachelor's degree and many of them have social work specific degrees.
0: Do you consider them mentors?
1: There's a mentoring component, certainly. But we also have something that we call Impact Circles. So that's a volunteer program that we have that is a mentoring program. And it operates with the idea that the circles that we have give us opportunity, and we want to broaden the circles of our kids in life. And so we have volunteer mentors that we pair up with the youth that are interested in being paired up. Then the circle that's around them all of the access and resources that each of those volunteers have get passed on to our kids as well. That's one of the components as a mentoring program that we have of volunteers that engage with our youth. Impact Circles contain some other things as well. Like we have a training component where we have businesses from the community that partner with us and provide a training. And sometimes those two concepts connect with each other. I'll give you an example. We had a realtor locally in Lynchburg come do a training for our youth on how to purchase a home. Like, what does it look like to buy a home? What kind of finances do you need? Buying a home 101. Well, a relationship was formed between a realtor, that realtor and one of our youth. And that youth started learning a lot more about what that would take and spending time with that realtor. And when it came time to leave our program, he left our program and bought his own home using the realtor that he had met in one of our Impact Circles programs. He left our program at age 20 to purchase his own home. That was a huge win for us as an organization when we get to see kids who, you know, one for him, he graduated high school for the first time out of anyone in his family. He completed a trade program even though no one in his family had done that yet and purchased his own home, you know, for the first time in his family's history. And so, you know, 20-year-old, I wasn't buying houses. And so (laughs) (laughs) no, (laughs) he was able to utilize the people and the relationships that we got him connected with. He was able to utilize the program and save a whole lot of money because of it and uh, combine those two things to buy his own home. And I thought that was really cool to be able to experience that this past summer.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. Do your services kind of revolve around this transitional living that you offer, the apartments and townhomes, or is that just one of many different types of programs you run?
1: So we have really three programs and then there's programs inside of each of those things, but really three main areas that we focus on. That's our independent living program. And initially when we started in 2012, that's all we did was independent living. But what we found after launching in 2012 was that These kids often have some mental and behavioral health needs. And so we started a counseling program as well. And so we provide counseling, not only to the kids in our program, but also to the community. We do like outpatient therapy, which is what most people would think of as counseling. You go to an office and you see a counselor, but also some community-based stuff to try to get on the front end and avoid children coming into foster care and stabilize families prior to that taking place. And then our third program is treatment foster care. And so, you know, we work with kids zero to 17 and place them in homes with families and provide a ton of support to those families and to that child while they're in that home and hopefully work towards reunification.
0: And so when you're saying treatment foster care, again, maybe for listeners who aren't as familiar, what are the parameters that make it treatment foster care versus regular foster care?
1: I'll try to... Oversimplify it, and it's this. If it's with the local Department of Social Services, the government agency, it is going to be traditional foster care. If it's with a private agency, they will get a bit more training and a bit more support in the home. And that's kind of what gets classified as treatment foster care. And typically, the type of kids that are referred to those private agencies are ones that need a bit more support.
0: Okay. And about how many young people do you serve?
1: Treatment foster care program is our newest one. And so we only have 12 children in that program currently. Our independent living, we have 64 active kids that are 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. We have 64 that are across the state. And with counseling, that
0: number is
1: closer to 500 that we currently see.
0: Wow, that's quite a reach.
1: Yeah, so most of them would be in an outpatient client. And so we see them maybe once a week because we have offices in Lynchburg, Roanoke, Harrisonburg, Richmond, Fairfax, and apartments in Fredericksburg. We just opened in November for independent living. And so not all of those places have all of our services, but most of them have outpatient therapy. And only Lynchburg has the community based counseling currently.
0: Okay. Now, I know that there's a phrase that a lot of our listeners are familiar with. It's the trauma-informed care.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
0: And I would imagine that's integral to your program.
1: A big part of trauma-informed care is asking the question, what happened to you rather than what's wrong with you, right? You know, what we know is that these kids have bad outcomes and it's not because there's something wrong with them. It's because of what we know of what the trauma that they've experienced often results in some undesirable behaviors and some challenges. And a lot of these kids not only had to experience the trauma of whatever was going on in their home, but also the trauma of being placed in foster care. Because I don't know about you, but it would be pretty hard for me to be taken away from my family. And I don't know how I would deal with that. And I might not use the kindest of words all the time and may have some undesirable behaviors if someone tried to take my family away from me. And then also, you know, a lot of these kids that we serve that are aging out have been through several families. I mentioned being a foster parent and we just adopted our daughter on November 19th. And so the day before National Adoption Day, she had been with us a year and a half before we adopted her and she had also been through five families. And so not only being taken from her own family in a different state, but also then having to deal with going through family after family after family. Man, that's the story for a lot of these kids, and it's really hard.
0: Do you think that there would be a benefit to, I don't want to use the word requiring, I don't know if that's quite right, but pairing services with counseling for all youth in foster care? Because it just seems like All the youth would benefit from having a counselor to talk to and to, you know, thinking about the trauma in their life and working through it and managing it in their current life. And the reason I ask is because one of the interviews that I had, a podcast interview was with the Right Way Foundation. In fact, one of AOI's board members is the individual who runs the Right Way Foundation, and he started it as an employment agency for foster youth. And he hired career counselors, you know, people who were really just focused on finding jobs. But he discovered that the young people often did not manage stressful situations very well. They lashed out at their employers. They walked out, that type of thing, when things triggered them. So he decided to change his whole model. And he went from regular career counselors to mental health counselors who also do career placement and support. And he said it just was a 180 degree turnaround as far as the outcomes for these young people. And so I'm just wondering if that's a model that other organizations can somehow work with.
1: You know, I think that the easy answer to that question would be yes. The more complicated one is, I don't know. (laughs) Here's why, you know, going back to my personal experience, like putting my professional experience as a counselor aside and as the executive director of Impact Living Services aside, I have a daughter who came to us and she's super guarded. And so she went to a counselor and hated counseling and wouldn't really open up and was frustrated and let us know she was frustrated every time we brought her to counseling. So we said, you know what? Let's try a different counselor, you know? Let's try someone else. And so we tried another counselor. And that counselor came to us after a few months and was like, We're not really getting anywhere. And my daughter came out of counseling very angry for that session because she, you know, wasn't ready to deal with that stuff. We said, you know what? If you're not ready to deal with this stuff, we're not going to try to push it. And our hope is at some point you'll be able to process and work through this stuff. But that's not something that we can make happen. So, yeah, so we took her out of counseling. And after that, she actually started doing really well. And now, granted, Not every foster parent is going to be a licensed professional counselor. And so, you know, I think my experience probably helped navigate some of those different challenges as they came up in the home, where not everyone has a professional living in the home (laughs) to deal with those types of behaviors. I definitely think having an understanding of what you're seeing and what those behaviors mean can definitely be beneficial. And for those that are working with the kids as they're trying to launch having that as a resource and access. Now, granted, you know, like I said, we just adopted our daughter, and she's now 15. When we got her, she was 14. Uh, A 14-year-old developmentally is going to be in a different place than a youth that's aging out that's 17, 18, and trying to navigate the world in a different way. And so having that as a resource, I would 100% say that having that as a resource for those youth is a necessary component for them to be successful. And so whether or not they take advantage of it is probably going to be on a youth by you a kid by kid. It's going to be on whether or not they're ready, but at some point they would certainly benefit from it.
0: That makes sense. Yes. Now, I did have a question about the ages of the young people you work with. In Virginia, do they have extended foster care till 21?
1: They do. Yes.
0: And those are the youth you work with. Once they've formally aged out, then you don't work with them any longer?
1: So that depends. We don't get funding for them any longer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we'll say that, but that doesn't mean we don't work with them any longer. In fact, we have some youth in our program that we never received funding for because they were adopted and turned 18 after their adoption and then their placement disrupted. Even though quote unquote permanency was achieved, it kind of looked a lot like foster care. And so we have kids like that in our program that we don't receive funding for. And, you know, our hope is that we're able to help those youth launch prior to their 21st birthday. But we don't always get kids when they turn 18. I mentioned a young man who was in our program. He was ready to launch at 20 and launch by buying his own home. You know, obviously not every child who comes to our program is ready to purchase a home when they leave. But a good amount are ready to live independently and That often looks like in an apartment with a roommate and that sort of thing. And if they aren't ready by their 21st birthday and they've been putting in the work, but sometimes they just need some additional resources, you know, we can continue to work with them past that age point. So until they're ready to launch, we're not going to put a kid who's not ready, who's putting in the work and say, sorry, we (laughs) no longer have access to funding.
0: Right. See ya.
1: We help prepare them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, and then also with that, you know, we... And this is a fun, another fun story. We had some folks go up to Harrisonburg, which is where one of our offices are, because one of our kids just graduated with their bachelor's, a former youth. He had aged out and he just completed his bachelor's degree in social work. And we actually hired him. So we have a former youth who is now an employee of ours because he did so well. And we have stayed connected over the years and is now on the serving end of things. So kind of coming full circle.
0: That's great. And having that lived experience, I think, goes a long way with young people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's credibility that he has that most of our employees can never achieve.
0: Right, exactly. Now, I did have a couple of questions about your independent living program. You said, you know, it's furnished, you provide some basic financial support, things like you know, money for groceries and so forth, utilities, is there a formal curriculum that will enable them to learn things like budgeting and being able to pay for things themselves at some point?
1: Yeah. So we have several different curriculums that we use and some training that is not curriculum-based. But it all kind of runs from the Casey Life Skills Assessment and the curriculum that's attached to that we purchased and have access to. And then we kind of combine that with a lot of community resources, and those community resources depend on which community they're living in. And so, for example, in Fairfax and Richmond, we may do a bit more training on public transportation than some of our other sites because the community looks very different, and access to those major metropolitan systems don't translate across the board. Ideally, our youth are able to purchase cars and we help them with that. You know, a lot of times we match some of their savings so that they are able to purchase a car. Or some of our youth, we've given some money and also like a zero interest loan so that they can practice making an agreed upon payment back to us so that they get that practice of paying bills and then are able to have a car without having to go through those you know, high interest dealerships that take advantage of folks that don't have credit at that point in life.
0: Yeah, right, right. The other question that I wanted to ask you, and this is probably because we just, AOI just had a webinar yesterday on measuring organizational impact. Yeah. And I'm just wondering, how do you measure that you are making a difference in these young people's lives? I'm just curious. Sorry if I put you on the spot, but- No, that's
1: okay. Yeah. (laughs) We do capture data, so you didn't catch us on this. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, you didn't put me in a bad spot. And there are a few things that we measure specifically. And that is, you know, I mentioned some of those outcomes that generally are kind of attached to youth aging out of foster care. You know, one in four incarcerated for the age 21, one in five homeless. 71% of girls are pregnant for the age 21, those sort of things. We capture, do they finish high school while they're in our program? are they getting experience in the workforce, aka, are they getting a job? Are they able to navigate transportation? Do they have a bank account? Those sort of things. And so we capture that on a monthly basis to see. And I can send you after the podcast, I can send you what those numbers are. But overall, much higher than the national average of employment, education, all of those factors, all of those risk factors that you would see for the youth aging out of foster care. The kids that experience the support that we serve do so much better than those outcomes. That being said, there are times that kids don't make it through our program, and we have to say goodbye. Unfortunately, not every child that comes to our program is successful. Not every child that comes to our program is there for very long. Our average length of stay is a year. I think 13 months now. For the most part, those are positive discharges and opportunities for those youth to make strides at the next level of their life and the next steps of their life.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm trying to envision how it works as far as finding the young people. I know you said that there are referrals. Do the young people find you and say, hey, I want to be part of your program, or are they referred and they're put in your program, right? Somebody else is putting them in because that can make a difference as far as motivation.
1: Yes, (laughs) to both of those
0: things.
1: (laughs) So sometimes we have kids reach out directly and they hear about us and are like, hey, how can I do this? And other times it is a DSS worker, a social services worker who contacts us and say, hey, you know, in Virginia, you asked about extended foster care. In Virginia, that's called fostering futures. And so they may call us and say or send us an email and say, hey, I've got a a young person who is about to enter Fostering Futures and would like to hear more about your program. And so what we do is we set up an interview with that young person and a tour of our program, kind of let them know, hey, if you come here, this is what you can expect from us and this is what we expect from you. We really want to change or give you an opportunity If someone came to me at 18 and said, hey, you know, we're going to have an apartment that is taken care of and take care of these basic needs, that would be a really good opportunity that I would see. And a lot of these youth feel the same way, whether it's them reaching out or their social worker reaching out for them. Many of them are excited and can't wait
0: All right. Well, let me ask you this. I know we're approaching the end of our time together, but I did want to give you a chance to let people know if they're listening and would like to send you a donation for the work that you're doing. How can they do that?
1: Can I tell you the biggest need we have? Sure. Right now, I mentioned we have 64 kids in our program, and we spend approximately like extrapolated out month to month, month over month now. We're spending about a million dollars a year in housing for these apartments. And that is in rent. And so it's money that we will never see again. And so our hope is that we can start to purchase these homes so that we can make sure that we'll be able to serve this population forever and ever. Right now, we're kind of beholden to landlords. We're beholden to apartment complexes and have to deal with the ebbs and flows of whatever it is that they say. Our hope is that we can purchase these townhomes, start purchasing apartments, and be able to serve these kids forever. And so that's our biggest campaign right now. And if someone was interested in giving to that cause, they can go to our website, which is impactlivingservices.org. And then they can go to get involved and donate. Or, you know, halfway down the page, there's also a donate button. And that is the biggest way or I guess the most impactful way, is to make sure that we can continue to do this work forever. And a big risk that we carry is having 60 apartments that we're leasing. As we continue to grow, so does that risk, as long as we're renting those properties rather than than having them and, and securing them.
0: All right. Well, I'm glad you have an opportunity to share that. And maybe there are listeners who would like to donate to that cause, that very worthy cause. Yeah. Thank you. You're welcome. Let me ask this then before we end our conversation. What do you think that the foster care system, and I know the system is, I mean, there are so many different layers. There's the federal funding layer. There's the state layer. There's the county layer. Is there anything that you think the foster care system generally could do to better improve foster youth outcomes?
1: I'll say this. I don't know that there's any system that can improve outcomes. What I think changes outcomes are people. You know, one thing that the foster care system can do or what, you know, private agencies like mine can do, what other organizations can do, what churches can do is get involved. These kids need people and they need resources. You know, a good way or a way that I explain this to people when we're recruiting for our Impact Circles program is oftentimes I ask folks, I said, have you ever gotten a job because of somebody you know? Almost all the time when I'm talking to professionals in the community, the answer is like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have. I have. Yeah, I have. <laughs> My last few jobs that I have weren't a typical interview process. So weren't a typical application process because I have made relationships in the community and I have done good work. And so people who know me, when opportunities come around, they call me. I've been with Impact for five years now and will probably be here forever because <laughs> I'm so passionate about this work. Almost all of the time that I've asked the same question to a youth aging out of foster care, the answer is always no. You know, and it goes back to that relational poverty. You know, when you don't have connections to improve your life, it's really hard to improve your life. And so these kids can be doing everything right. They can be going to school. They can be going to work. They can be working their tail off trying to be the first in their family to accomplish something great then their car breaks down. And then what? You know, if they don't have those people that are kind of in their corner supporting them, then they lose their job, then they can't pay their rent, and then they go back oftentimes to really unhealthy situations. And it's really hard to get out of that cycle of finding success when that's the case. And so, I think when when faith communities, when local businesses, when People in the community start investing more than transactionally. You know, listen, I just talked about a, a transactional need we have. Don't get me wrong, we'll take it. But ultimately, what changes outcomes is getting messy and getting involved in people's lives and having your circles and your resources and your social equity when you're able to pass that along to someone else. That's what changes outcomes.
0: It sounds like you would use the word relational poverty, which I hadn't heard before. And it's very descriptive. It really, I think it makes the point very clearly. One of the goals with these young people should be to help them not only just connect with one adult, but to build a network. Absolutely. So that they can build their relational net worth, if you will.
1: Yeah, I think that if we're using a financial relational poverty, social equity Building up their net worth and their portfolio is pretty important and going to be the answer for how they can become successful.
0: Yeah. Now my brain's going to start wondering about how can you get... (laughs) You know, because we as professionals, there are networking groups, right? Yeah. There are ways to get people with each other in a professional industry so that you can build those relationships. What can we do for these young people while they're in foster care?
1: And again, it's complicated, right because we're talking about kids who are often don't trust the adults yeah, in their life true. because of one their experience of the adults that are supposed to be safe hasn't been great and then if they've been in foster care their experience often is well these adults move on right they go do something else and so they're not they're not going to be around very long and so it's really hard to say all right hey you need people you need to trust them when Their experience has been okay. And I go do that. And then what happens? Mm -hmm. Then they leave. Right. right? So it is more complicated than kind of I'm making it seem, just because it is so important for them to have. So my message often when I'm talking to the youth is you know what? They might, they might leave because I have relationships that come in seasons too. And there are people that come and go in and out of my life, but that doesn't mean I don't invest in them having those relationships are worth it, even if it Mm -hmm. is just for a season.
0: Yeah. I think another perspective is the young people who don't want to get close to anyone while they're in foster care because they know they're leaving, right? Because that was me in high school. I went into foster care early 10th grade. I moved to different group homes, moved to Baltimore, moved to Pennsylvania. I'm like, forget it. I'm not making friends because I'm just going to have to move. And so for me, it was a protection for myself, right? I don't want to get close to people. I mean, of course, I made acquaintances, but I didn't want to get close to people because I knew I was going to probably leave. So you might have young people with that perspective too. Not that they don't trust, they're just protecting themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then we also come across some youth who just don't have that skill set, right? They don't know really like, how do I make relationships with people and form them in a way that is healthy? And they may not be able to verbalize that, but it's more so they're just riddled with anxiety because they're put in situations that they're not familiar or comfortable with.
0: Very true. You know, maybe when we're working with them, trying to identify the trauma in their lives, part of that is to ascertain their perspective on that relationship building, you know, and how open they are to it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think some of the, I talked about some of the statistics. I think those statistics tell us the same story. You know, 71% of girls are pregnant before the age of 21. And I think that speaks to just the longing and desiring to connect, right? And so I think it looks different for kids who are trying to figure out what that looks like, but that desire to have family, to be family, to have someone to care about and for someone to care about them. There are healthy ways to do that, and unfortunately, I think it's really hard for this population sometimes, or it can be hard, and I think that's why we see some of these statistics as well is we see a high, high teenage pregnancy, and it stems from this longing and needing to connect with people.
0: Right. Well, I would love to continue our conversation. (laughs) I really would. This is the part of the interview that I just love so much is the solutioning. How do we better serve these young people? But unfortunately, we are out of time. So I want to thank you very much, Adam, for joining me today. I really appreciate you sharing. I appreciate the work that you're doing there in Virginia. And I do wish you all the best.
1: Yeah, thank you, Lynn. It was an honor to be a part of this podcast. Thank you.
0: You're very welcome. And for those who have listened to the podcast to the end, thank you very much. We put out a podcast every couple weeks or so, and you can find us on pretty much all the podcast services, all of the websites out there that share podcasts. And you'll also find all of our podcasts on agingoutinstitute.org. Just find the podcast link and you'll see them there. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time.